Welcome back, Wisdom Warriors. I hope you had a good Christmas and New Year, and hopefully it was better than mine because I got COVID and I have not been able to do anything. But we've managed to get it together to do the first podcast back, which is talking about the one year no beer challenge. And I'm delighted to be joined again by Hannah McGlynn. If you listen to the first podcast, you'll know a bit about Hannah's story and how she quit drinking uh, six years ago. And we're talking about stopping drinking, cutting back on drinking, taking a break, what we've learned as a result, some techniques for not drinking and surviving Irish culture or any kind of drinking heavy culture. Hannah is the studio lead at Publicist Dublin, videographer, photographer, amazingly talented, creative, and also a great Sherpa on the mountain of not drinkingness and very brave and courageous as well in telling her story and sharing it for other people learn from which i have huge respect for and i think people will get a lot from this podcast in it we're talking about obviously 365 days off the drink we're talking about why we kept drinking how we kind of have been doing it what the things we've learned and hopefully some insights and inspiration for people that are either thinking about cutting back taking a break or just kind of curious about their own habits and doing something a little bit different. Um, so this would be some good New Year motivation for you. Maybe you've already done July, January, and it's too late. But uh, if not, hopefully it'll give you something going forward. So as always, if you're enjoying the podcast, I am putting up videos on YouTube now, uh, where most of the content will be going. Also on Substack with the essays, videos, podcasts. So they're both in the description below. Subscribe and you can get the email straight to your inbox. Uh, it's just a better way than using social media. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy the podcast. Oh. Welcome to the podcast, Hannah McGlynn. It is great to have you back for your second visit to these hollow halls. People still tell me that they listen to the first one for inspiration whenever they're trying to not drink too much. So hopefully we can bring bring a bit more of that maybe. Yeah, we can recreate that energy. Mm, the way, yeah, the way of the sober samurai. But um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I kind of, for a bit of context, I, um, I did the last year, 365 days off the drink. I thought that was really impressive. And then my barber earlier was like, oh, I've been off it for seven years. And I was like, ah, sweet. <laughs> <laughs> he just didn't didn't seem to give a shit. I was like, oh, cool. But um, yeah, I wanted to touch base with you and just talk about, I suppose, things I've learned. And you were a great guide for me. I really admire what you've done as well, quitting drinking. And that's given me some kind of inspiration and uh, way forward at times so that's why uh this is my cards on the table i suppose for this conversation um mm. start off well with. thank you so much for having me back um it's been it's been about two years since the last one is it since my last confession i actually think it has been yeah probably was yeah. jesus was it the pandemic i think so yeah i think we were like locked yeah. at home at the time i think um, we actually were so that's interesting as well because we've now been released into the world and we're socializing with people and uh 
trying to do it without drinking. I'm sure loads of other people are listening as well. Maybe they've done dry January. Maybe they're kind of thinking about it. Um, maybe for a little bit of context, it could talk about, I mean, I decided to do the year off because I was just kind of sick of being drunk and hung over and engaging in foolishness a lot of the time. Mm. Um, just something I kind of noticed about drinking is like it, it didn't make me a better person, I found. I, I was constantly struggling with that, um, enjoying doing it, but also the results not being so good. But yeah, maybe if you want to give some context to people about your experience, Anna, and you know where you're coming where from. Where am I? <laughs> well, thank you. So I am now. I'm coming up on being six years off the drink, which is bizarre. Like in April, it'll nice. be six years. So yeah, because that's the thing. I think the last time I was coming up on my four year anniversary, yeah. and. I feel like even since then I've learned a lot like it's been a it's been a journey Mm. and I think you know the longer you off it you are the stronger you are in some ways Mm. but um let me think so context I gave up drinking yet nearly six years ago so at the time I was 22 only all you baby and yeah I was just going through that same thing of like I really enjoyed drinking. I never thought that it was an issue. I thought it was kind of one of the only good things in my life. Um, but, you know, I couldn't deal with the hangovers and the actual like mental effects that I was getting from it. So, you know, I couldn't correlate the like depression I was going through to like the chemicals that are depressants that I was putting in myself. Like I completely was just like, so many people that are like talking to her. They're like, man, I just feel so bad at Christmas. I don't know what it is. Like I just have all this anxiety. I'm like, you've been drinking for like, 10 days <laughs> like you're yeah this is, the side effect of drinking is anxiety and depression like that's what it does but yeah it's so and we have such a disconnect like, join the two man you're like oh i must be i'm, I'm sick or i had a bad burger or something like it. you're like well yeah. probably a session but yeah sorry i shouldn't be interrupting you no no you're so fine no um this is a conversation um mm. but let me think so yeah so when i went um when I went off the drink I had gone to have like um I basically my doctor had put me on to go and be seen and passed so for like I thought it would just be to kind of like to see a therapist or something and I went and did a whole like psychiatric evaluation which took about four hours and at the end of it they were like you have all this like PTSD and trauma and everything but on top of that of that you have like issues with like substance abuse and alcohol and we recommend you come in and do a month-long alcohol and and substance you know I guess like a rehabilitation program and I was gobsmacked so I was like me like you should see my mate you think I should be in there like what about everyone I know like that makes no sense to me and I just thought that like I I remember being so shocked and then coming out and telling my mom and I think that was really hard for her too because you know I was her like 22-year-old little daughter being like, this is what I need to go and do now. And at the time, I was meant to be going to New York for a J1 with all my friends. And I was like, oh, like, I don't want to go and do that. Like, you know, I want to go to New York um, and, you know, live my hot girl life or whatever. But I had ended up making the decision after a month. They gave me like a month and a half to choose. And also they needed to get, you know, a bed together and stuff. So, um yeah I made my decision after it took me like a week but even in talking to my close friends at the time they were all like you don't need to do that because like 
them admitting that I needed to do that meant that they probably, if we were all kind of on the same level, they probably needed something or, you know, it was a reflection of like their own drinking or issues around that. So, um, yeah, I went in and I ended up in there for three months, which I thought I was told initially I'd be in for a month and it was actually three months in the end. And yeah, like it changed my life. I had to go to AA twice a week and then another program, Life Ring, once a week, which is uh, Life Ring is like similar to AA, but you just focus on the week uh, behind you and the week ahead of you and like how you're going to stay clean in that time. And yeah, I mean, initially, like the first like week or two, I was like, I'm going to do this program, even though I don't need it, but um, I'll just do it so I can get like the psychology I need to do done. And I had this real penny drop, I think it was like a week or two in of being like, oh, this this isn't normal. The way that myself and all the people around me are living is actually not normal. When you look at like the wider society of like the world, it's just that within our culture, we're just so like, but this is what everyone does. This is fine. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah. And then it was actually the the moment that I actually had um, in AA and stuff, they say like that you should never say to yourself, like, I'm never going to drink again, because it's very hard to actually even come to terms with that. And for a lot of people, that's what like knocks them off. It's, you know, the one day at a time kind of is more, I don't know, it's better for a lot of people. Mm. But um, I was sitting in, it was an AA open meeting and there was a woman, I think she was about 28. And at the time also, I was listening to these people in AA who were all, you know, in their kind of like 50s, 60s, whose lives I couldn't really relate to so much and whose stories I couldn't relate to so much. And yeah, this this gal, she talked about, you know, how she went from like, you know, drinking in her teenage years, you know, drinking in fields and that and drinking her nagins and all. And then to, you know, the kind of binge drinking that I would have been going through and the kind of, she was really much like describing where I was currently at. And then from that point, you know, then how it got worse was, you know, as you get to the point that we are now, you know, you're young working professionals and life gets stressful. You have a glass of wine in the evening that escalates to vodka that escalates and escalates and escalates. And, you know, that she was on this invisible chaos machine is the kind of reference I always use. Um, And she couldn't see that, like everything around her was falling apart and she couldn't see why. But she was like Mm. consistently fueling the invisible chaos machine and um with drink like with alcohol yeah like completely yeah like being like why does it have fuel while you're also there fueling it you know and drinking yeah and just and still being like shocked by the outcomes you know when you're consistently you know doing the same thing so um that was the first time that I was like whoa like and basically she had talked about her periods of sobriety she had had and then how she'd be like oh no I've learned to drink better now now I'll be able to go back and how for her anyway and I think for me as well because I've had brief periods before this um you think oh yeah I'll take a break and then I'll be able to go back with fresh eyes and be better but like when those patterns and behaviors are in you and once you lose your inhibitions you're kind of guaranteed the same outcome every time so that was the start of me really like you know it took a while as well but make coming to terms with the fact that like actually drinking probably isn't for me at all (laughs) that's a hard realization though to be honest because it's something i'm wrestling with at the moment having like i was like i'm gonna do the year and then everybody's like when are you starting drinking again like everybody's like are you coming out people are like like oh i won't see a christmas we can meet up in january when you're drinking again kind of thing and you're like uh 
I've kind of learned, I mean, I've seen the wheel go round enough and I think watch people drinking to see now the kind of self-deception that's involved in it a lot of the time, which is like, oh, it's fine. I'm doing this. But it's kind of a thing that takes you to the same place every time. Like you'll drink in different occasions, but you just, if you get too drunk, you're going to habitually repeat it. I always think about where it's like, you're trying to control yourself with a substance that specifically makes it difficult to control yourself. It's like a game of chicken with your own willpower. Because the thing, like, you, what you'd use to control your behavior is being damaged by the drinking. So I don't, I, I don't trust it anymore. Like, I do, part of me does want to, you know, see friends and have a couple of pints and enjoy it. But another part of me sees that, like, invisible chaos machine and just really can't deny it. Did you come up with the invisible chaos machine or is that something they taught you in the AA? I think it was either it was either that woman or it was someone in AA. I remember when I heard it in that like yeah. I don't know in that kind of description. I was just like that was what resonated with me the most. That I was just like mm. so I kept being like my life is falling apart, my life's in shit. Like and I I just don't understand what I'm doing wrong. Mm. But like you are the chaos. Like you're you're sitting on top of this chaos machine that's like destroying everything, but you're fueling it. And I just yeah. I don't know. I think it's a great descriptor for it because like you're not like consciously doing all these things wrong and even like that's the thing so many people aren't conscious of like with the chemical effects of alcohol that you know I think it's up to 10 days or seven days after you have like a drink you can be feeling the antidepressant effects but like when you're sad you can't actually relate that back to that you're just like no I'm sad because my life's a shambles you can't be like these are the chemicals (laughs) it's the sneakiest effect that I because I've I've completely vibe with that myself like i remember me me and my friend james who you know as well we used to be like on a, like after a weekend of drinking you'd be like why why have i been cursed like this like what why god why do i feel this way and you're like well you know we just drank loads of beers and have been you know out for two days obviously this is going to happen but it makes it very it's very hard to recognize that that's the problem and go yeah it's this because i think it requires like really radical change did you find that when you first took it off, like it revealed all the things in your life that weren't put together? Like for me, I noticed like, oh, I'm papering over a lot of stuff with this that makes me comfortable, but I actually don't feel comfortable a lot of the time. Oh, completely. Like I, mm. one of the things that was, I think the hardest thing for me to come to terms with. And like one of the things that made it so hard for me to stop to be, you know, I was 22 mm. was that I was like, I kept saying this thing of being like, no, like, the, the me that all my friends love and all the people around me love is the like me when I'm like drinking or I'm partying like she's so like fun and like I had this other version of myself that I was like I could never in my sober self go out and be around people like that or like go on nights out because I need that as like a social lubricant for sure you know we started drinking when we were what 13 14 so we were socialized through alcohol and never really learned those proper communication skills to actually be able to hold a conversation with another person and not feel awkward or uncomfortable. And so initially it was like having all of that removed and being like, right now, off you go, um, which is hard. And I, I think a lot of the people I know now are really who are doing like dry January and stuff or who are starting off on like, you know, even sober curiosity and um, find that the biggest struggle because you're so used to being like, oh, I feel a little sexy, have a little pint, you know, like, and then, and then they're just like hello I am the me that is like you know in my day-to-day in work or whatever yep 
Yeah, you don't get that transformation. Like, you don't have the instant just, like, two, three. You're like, oh, I feel a bit awkward, but if I have two pints, then I'll be getting going and it'll be fine. You have to yeah. kind of get over the hump yourself. And that, like, that discourages me a lot of the time, to be honest. Like, I socialize. I was looking over, like, I did, like, an annual review of, like, the last year of stuff. <laughs> like, productivity bro shit. But um, yeah. just looking at, like, what went well? What did I do? What was good? And then I was, like, looking through, and I was like, I think I went out probably like a fraction of the amount of times that I would have done. I did more last year. I accomplished more, I think, than I had any other year in recent memory. But my socializing dipped dramatically, like a lot. Yeah. Because even when I was going out, I was staying till 10, maybe 11. And then I was going home and like I wasn't there till three, four in the morning. Like there wasn't that amount, but I was able I, I didn't have any FOMO. I wasn't like, oh, shit, that was... I didn't miss it. You know what I mean? Yeah. But I did notice this change. And, like, if I didn't have something else to do, it would have been very hard, I think. Because, like, if you take away the drinking and don't replace it with anything, you're just kind of, you know, sitting around. <laughs> like, I think you need... It reveals that the purpose and the need for something you're passionate about or that you're even just dedicating time to, I think completely honestly and that's saying there's such a void when you actually look at this is another thing I had to do in treatment was you know to look at all of the time you would have spent drinking and you know calculate those hours roughly and to be like right so you would have spent say 20 hours a week drinking you had a part-time job in the drinking and if you're not going to fill that with something that is like positive or you know whether that's like a hobby or an activity or even just like making sure you go and see friends or whatever it is then something else, if you have particularly addictive behaviors or like self-sabotaging behaviors, something else is going to fill that gap for you. And, you know, so it is really important. But that, that's the hardest thing I think about it because then you're sitting there and you're like, right, I'm not drinking anymore. I need to find something. So I'm going to start pottery. And we're looking for like the instant gratification thing as well. Because like, you know, you feel instantly good initially when you're like having your drinks or whatever. And like, most things in life don't provide you with that same instant thing. It is unfortunately mostly only the things that are bad for us that give us that, that dopamine. Literally. Yeah. yeah. Flow, so... flow states. That was something that I realized as well this time was flow states. Like you need that kind of losing self-consciousness. Like when you drink and you just become immersed in everything that's going on. You're not thinking, you're not worrying about stuff. Like that's really... Mm it's a curative kind of state but if you don't have that anywhere in your life the drinking becomes a way of kind of getting into that mode but like with the pottery example like maybe the person that's done pottery for 10 years probably gets into a flow state the minute they see a bit of pottery like they're like sweet i'm in the zone but when you first start off you're gonna suck so it's not gonna be like you're not gonna get into a kind of rhythm at all but I think the thing you can replace drinking with is flow states, bad ones yeah. like addictions or good ones like exercising, like something. Generally, it's something I think you have to have a certain amount of experience in, a certain amount of skill. You have to be developing the skill like martial arts for me, like sparring. You're in a flow state instantly because you're mm. paying loads of attention. You're not kind of distracted. You're not self-conscious and you're building up, you know, your skill level day by day. But if you don't have that, you're going to be getting all your flow from 18 pints of Guinness in the bulb. Like, yeah. And it's so, that's good. the thing, you know, when you first, like I struggle with this even now, like 
I really don't like, I think most people don't like being bad at something, but I expect to be instantly good at something from the second I start it. So like, you look at yourself, you're like, I'm not drinking for this month. I'm going to take up pottery and you're not instantly good. It already feeds into that like cycle of shame you're having of being like, I'm a piece of shit. I'm not good at anything. I can't even make a bowl. Do you know? I like pottery. I'm a failure uh, as a human being. Yeah, pottery was actually the thing. When I was in treatment, I wasn't allowed to leave the building for the first month and a half. Um, And, you know, I was just like bored out of my mind. And it's, you know, coming into the summertime, everyone's out drinking pints. I was like, "Mm, feeling real sorry for me. And there was a pottery room. So I started making ashtrays. And um, (laughs) it was really therapeutic for me. And it made me realize as well, the importance of also channeling. If you are a creative person, even if you're not that creative, that like a creative outlet can be so healing something that you can like sit there and be you know like meditative pensive whatever it is and like like that get into that flow state but doing it without um what's the word without expectation you know because yep. mm. we're that, not gonna the creative thing reminds me so much of like the the invisible chaos machine that was something i i realized about myself like i was like as a creative person like if things are going well I'll kind of destroy it just because I want to do something else. Like I'll throw the toys out of the pram or I'm very like, I find it very hard to kind of add structure to my life and discipline and things like that. I think a lot of creative people do end up kind of on the session or in kind of addictive loops because you have a lot of energy. And like, if you're not channeling into creative work, it becomes chaos. It's uh, yeah. I think Stephen Pressfield's War of Art. He talks about like, how people become characters like these weird zany characters in life. And he's like, that's creative energy that hasn't been channeled into creative works. Your life becomes your work. Basically Mm. like you have all these crazy dramas going on and everything's all like, you know, there's mad stuff every week and it's like a soap opera, but that's because you have creative energy. That's not going anywhere. And so you're using it on yourself essentially. And you know, so another thing that I, we've been talking about this earlier, but, um, so that I, I was diagnosed with ADHD last year. Mm. And um, yep. one of the things with that is that people with ADHD are typically very creative types. And um, also people with ADHD, because you are dopamine deficient, like your brain, one of the things That's with ADHD is, getting, yeah, yeah you're lacking in hypothesis. dopamine. So it's mm. something like, I can't remember what the statistics were. It's something like if you have ADHD, you're three to five times more likely to suffer with addiction. Yeah. And um because yeah, you're just looking for like that that instant dopamine fix. Yeah. Um, so that's another thing that people are typically creative and like mm-hmm. that typically maybe a little bit outgoing or whatever it is and can fall into addiction. And like that it's if you're not getting the treatment or whatever it is that you need, that you're just constantly looking for dopamine in risky behavior. Which is actually rife with. Was, yeah. yeah. I read that the low dopamine hypothesis by TJ Spencer, um, which was in 2015 he did mm. the first paper on it that was like one of the things one of the ways they figured it out was people with ADHD typically did more recreational drugs and they thought it was because like oh you can't focus or whatever you're more impulsive but it was actually turned out that it was because of self-medicating because like if you're have low dopamine and you do recreational drugs you feel normal <laughs> like you don't yeah you're not even getting high you actually just feel better and you're like oh this is great like I actually feel like how I want to feel so you're more likely to get caught in this loop of, you know, abusing different substances because that's how yeah. Ritalin works as well. I mean, they're like designed to increase levels of dopamine in the brain, but obviously in a 
medically advised way um, yeah not just like winging it but, completely yeah. like the medication i'm on it's uh it's a different mm. amphetamine so it's not ritalin but um yeah. yeah i remember initially i was very resistant to that because i was like oh no like i struggle with addiction like i can't be mm. on an amphetamine uh, but it's like the way that it works in some of that issue's brain is that like something that yeah would send someone else like up the walls just makes you like normal and be able to focus and like actually feel at ease and in actual fact instead of making you crave things and feel like oh I need to do xyz because you're getting that dopamine fix you don't feel the same need to even like for example use or like engage in risky things or I just know my impulsivity went way down Yep. stocks are way down after going on that um yeah, even like yeah. the amount of tattoos i got i've gotten since that really plummeted like some of these really? things that That's are yeah, yeah i just haven't had the need or felt mm. the need to do um as many reckless things anymore which is yeah. interesting but it's so interesting because like you can you can be in that state like the same way at the drinking and like you don't notice it almost we tend to think these we equate these things to, like who we are and like this is what i do and this is how i live but then you realize oh, I, you know, I have a chemical deficiency in my brain. <laughs> like that's actually yeah. creating a lot of these negative behavior, but like are, are positive. One. I mean, but it's hard to kind of, I, the dopamine one I think is going to be like the most important thing in the 21st century, to be honest, because like all the stuff I'm doing on like social media and smartphones, like smartphones have been shown to cause ADHD now. Yeah. Because they're so rewarding and young kids that they develop habits. And if you develop a habit for it under the age of nine, it's very hard to break it apparently. So they're habitually giving themselves higher than normal rewards and their do- their dopamine level is dropping below baseline and their body's not producing it. So you're going to be in a state that's, well, you're not just, you're not going to enjoy things. You know, you're not going to have motivation or um, any kind of pursuit emotion, but to have that self-awareness, I suppose, to kind of figure out what was it that made you kind of pursue the diagnosis or was there or was it something that you kind of just found out? So it was um, so funnily enough, I went when I was like 18. I, that was one of my like biggest bouts of depression. And um, mm-hmm. I was really suicidal and everything at the time. And I just felt like I think I felt like such an alien. And even then, I remember doing lots of like research and everything and being like, no, I must have this. And I went to my doctor at the time, who was not a great doctor. <laughs> and she basically just said, no, you're just, you're being lazy. You're not focusing. I, I said I couldn't focus. I see my leaving cert and everything. And she was like, focus is something that is learned, not given. And that you need mm-hmm. to like work on that. And uh, which was a real smack in the face. So then I was just like, oh no, I'm just a piece <laughs> of shit. That is interesting. I and suck. then that's the problem. Yeah, that's exactly it. And then, and funnily enough, with the whole ADHD thing, I think people with ADHD gravitate to other people with ADHD or like other neurodivergent people because they're like, oh, you get me. Like you are also a bit um, out of the norm or the neurotypical world. And, you know, you're typically creative or like that in circles of addiction, all these things. So I had always thought I was quite normal. And then... um, the more I kind of started to observe those things, and I think ADHD things also kept coming back into my algorithm. And the more I saw them, I'd be like, oh, well, everyone's like that. And I started to realize, like, no, not everyone's like that. Uh, but a lot of the people I'm surrounded by are like that. So um, I've been going through a bit of a bad spell uh, mentally last year. And I just wanted some sort of change. So I've this kind of felt like the answer for me. 
So I went to my doctor and I was really ready this time to like defend it to the ground. And I know women are chronically underdiagnosed with ADHD as well. So I was ready to fight my corner and it was a different doctor, fortunately. And yeah, she basically did a like an assessment for me in order to refer me. And after doing the assessment, she was like, I think you do kind of fit the characteristics of someone with ADHD. And luckily her son had it. So she was very like empathetic towards me. Mm -hmm. And then, yeah, I was referred on to a psychiatrist and usually like the process can take a long time. And unfortunately in Ireland, so many people were not diagnosed. You know, we were just labeled bold kids when you were in school. So, um, so yeah, so there's so many people out there looking for diagnosis. So the waiting lists are like long. So I was expecting Mm. to wait, you know, about a year or so for that, but I was just happy to have started the process. And then fortunately, a psychiatrist got back to me the next week and was like, I have a cancellation today. Can you come in? So we ran. And yeah, within like an hour of this whole like uh, assessment thing, he was like, yep, you have ADHD. Which is one of those really strange things of being like, now what? (laughs) (laughs) What do I do? I still got to concentrate. Like, Yeah, Yeah, like I went back to my car. Yeah. Yeah. And like I'd wanted it for so long and then and sat in my car and it was this whole like I was so upset but also so relieved and then spent the next couple of months kind of going through this whole process of kind of nearly like grieving and then anger and then you know initially was so happy and was like great I'm motivated to do these things and then Mm. why wasn't this noticed when I was younger my life could have been so different it's so unfair Mm. and then uh, being like oh no now this is actually like a death sentence because the things that I thought that were little problems in my life that now all, you know, fall under this umbrella together. Uh, like they're not just things I can sort out. They're things that are, you know, typical of someone with a brain like mine. Um, so it's been a big, uh, a big thing for me in the last year. Yeah, um, it's a big change. It reminds me, there's an interesting, I wonder, did they have you do a personality test at all to do with it? Because there's, an interesting kind of crossover between the ADHD literature and personality psychology, because people mm. with ADHD typically would have be more creative. They'd have more negative emotion and they'd have lower conscientiousness because conscientiousness is your ability to ignore distractions. Um, and so if you're creative, you're constantly having ideas and you're constantly interested in things. And then conscientiousness is the ability to suppress that. Basically they're like antagonistic because attention has, two networks which is the task network which is goal directed and the default mode network which is expanding it's like mind wandering like so if you're a creative Mm. person you're mind wandering all the time like that's what and in school they're like fucking stop doing that And you're like no that's literally who i am (laughs) like i can't i can't turn that off but like that's not gonna work it's a big i think more and more we're gonna see like that people can't fit into the educate because like i was talking to my sister about it and she was like oh no it's like she was like, it's, it's to do with a problem in the brain. But I was like, but it's also a problem with the fact that we're expected to sit in a thing for like eight to 10 hours and read. And that's completely abnormal for human beings. Like we, we don't do that. Like that's a very yeah. recent thing. And we're expecting everybody to do that. Even if a person who is much more active and much more suited for dealing with people or dealing with, you know, situations that they're more tactile or they're more like, we're trying to just force everybody through the same narrow gate and people aren't like that. Like we're individuals, we have unique skills and it needs to be more. I think the education system is probably going to have to be 
completely kind of overhauled at some point. But it yeah, for people like yeah, with ADHD or that problem, for so many young guys as well, like that just they fail in school and then they feel like, oh, I'm a failure. Like, I guess my life is I'm a bold person or I'm not a good person or I'm not good at these things, and you get a negative self image and that follows you forever. Like, and it's just because. <laughs> You should have been somewhere else. Like it's a different. Yeah, it's not your fault. Like, and that you're being held to the same. Mm. Like you know, you're being expected to meet these same marks that like mm. people who are like neurotypical can meet, and then you're mm. always going to fall short, and you're always going to go into this like, like I went through so many little like shame cycles of being like I cannot exist as a human being, which fed so much also into my depression. So it was like in this like tandem thing of feeling really like othered and feeling really like. Mm how do you function within society and then mm. oh isn't this great i can go and drink and do all these other things you know to self-medicate once again or just to feel better in myself and to feel more normal and to feel more like my peers um yeah, yeah. so the rabbit hole goes deep <laughs> well that's i mean that was to our earlier point like when you take away the drinking you kind of have to really think about those things and your niche i think is so important that's something i've really been thinking about and the internet kind of does that a lot where you have to define yourself all the time. You have to say, I'm this person and I'm into this thing. And this is, you know, the self-branding kind of aspect. But yeah, you do. I think for people to find their niche, you get a sense of satisfaction. It's a real problem if you feel like you're not in the right place in your life or where you are. And there's so like I've been there myself and I know there's so many people that are feeling that disconnect between where we are culturally and where we are in our individual lives like there's going to be a lot of uh hardships i think and addiction is one way of coping with that which doesn't yeah. work it makes it worse but. and have you found like i think i've found you know like i'm 28 now i think you're you're probably 28 too 28. aren't you yeah, yeah. yeah like um thing i was kind of talking about earlier as well of like when we were like younger obviously and we were drinking and that like you didn't notice it as much i think in people with like yeah. the way that they were like yeah people were like wild and partying but they were yeah like in college and that and you don't have that many responsibilities and everything yep. whereas now it's starting to really show in terms of like you can actually start to see it in people like some of the mm -hmm. people i know you can like see that they drink a lot or that um you know that they're trying to keep all these plates balanced while also like trying to manage an addiction or just that they're sad 100 percent, and you're trying to maintain because like you can't drink all the time and have a functioning adult life like I that was a big deal for me and Quentin was like this is taking up too much time like it's too I can't do both these things so the temptation might be to not take on responsibility or not to take on things that would you know more work or relationships or whatever and to continue drinking the same way but that's a losing game like that only gets harder I think as you get older and um, yeah the competition for your time like yeah. And it's just like, you know, having all of these, like, this is one thing that, you know, even at the, like when I was, I was still in college and I stopped drinking, but like I had all these aspirations and goals that like sober me really wanted to achieve. And I just couldn't see, like, there was such a distance between me achieving those yeah. things and like being able to, and, you know, like putting in the like long-term work versus just like the short-term rewards of just like going on a mad one, having a great time. That just always took my attention instead of being like, right, if I just like, take away all these distractions and put my head down and work towards what I want. 
and I mean like that's the thing I like now where I'm at is I have a great job and you know like I run a studio all that kind of stuff and I never could have been here had I not stopped drinking like I just would never have been capable of this and I know that mm. which is wild that's so interesting because like yeah I, I feel exactly the same way but the difference between that and just the idea of just opening a beer and having a beer at the weekend or something and being like this is fine but then you can also see how if that's the routine always it does limit the scope of the things you can do like there's a trade-off with everything like you to do one thing is to not do everything else so there is that thing to consider with drinking that I think when you get to our age probably becomes more important. I think when you're younger, if you want to, I wonder, that was a question I was going to ask you actually, like, do you feel ashamed of yourself then? Do you feel like, is that a, a source of embarrassment for you that you lived like that? Because I think for me it has been, but I don't know if that's actually a good thing. So actually. a source of it, like, am I embarrassed for like the person that I was then kind of? Yeah, or... they, they talk about like the shadow self that like there's a part like you've been there's a, a part of yourself that you look down on at a time in your life, essentially, that you want to reject and you want to be like, I can't believe I was that person. And it becomes like your kind of worst fear in a sense. Um, and I wonder, but then how do you kind of appreciate that person as well? Because you came out of that person like I find that hard to kind of put in context. Yeah, no, no, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, and it's interesting. I had a conversation about this recently. Um, mm. So yeah, like one of the things that kind of like that one is a tricky one because one of the things that does kind of keep me on my straight and narrow and like stops me from drinking is mm. I didn't like the person that I was then, and I couldn't stand behind, you know. And I mean more like the person I was when I was drunk. Like the person I was when I was sober was very different to the person I was when I was drunk. But I the decisions she would make were not ones that I could ever stand behind. And, you know, I would black out a lot of the time when I was drinking and I would do awful things and I'd hurt the people I love and, you know, make a show of myself. I'd be like loud, like obnoxious, aggressive. And like, that was not the person I wanted to be. And yeah, I, that's one of the things that caused me so much like shame and fear at that time. But um, so that person, and I think I have vilified her very much so because there are people who know me and yourself, like when I was drinking and when I go on about how awful I was, they're like, oh, you were never that bad. But I think for me, I need to vilify her to be like, I never want to go back there. Um, but then now I'm at a point as well of, I have a lot of compassion for my former self. Like I don't hate or feel ashamed of her because, you know, I was carrying so much trauma. I hadn't done the proper therapy I needed to do at that time. And I was just really hurting. So I think like now I just wish I could send that little girl so much love and, mm. you know, see myself. And I think it's really made me more empathetic as a person to be able to, you know, when you see someone even on the street acting like an arsehole or doing whatever or being rude or whatever it is, like, that you can try and pull back and be like, what is going on in that person's life? Or, you know, even when you're on a night out and someone's really like drunk and obnoxious. Now I'm not like, mm. oh God, he's a melter. I'm like, wow, for one, he could have a problem, whether that is like with alcohol chemically or things could be terrible at home or he could be really going through it. So, um, well, yes, there was a lot of shame um, at that time. And I think that's what helped to get me off the drink. Now I try to be a bit more like compassionate towards myself because I've realized like I am that person still, you know, 
even though I've changed massively like I used to act like it was like me then and me now are two completely different entities mm-hmm. but it's like it's the same vessel <laughs> it's just <laughs> an update we're in the, the same soup <laughs> kind of, yeah completely like yeah. this meat suit we share yeah, so yeah. um yeah so um that's the thing but like I think as well in the time after um when I was out of paths but I was still going to AA and stuff I started you know trying to do like the steps um, and basically the eighth step is making a list of all the people who you've harmed uh, with your addiction and then the ninth one is then um, making amends so you know reaching out to those people if it is like safe and you know won't harm you to do so and apologizing and um, one thing like I that was, that's the scariest step I think for most people because you know a lot of people in addiction have done bad things and you know the thing of like hurt people hurt people so um reaching out to people and apologizing but also having enough time of sobriety under my um under my belt that also I had obviously changed so much and like I am such a different person now that people can say oh well do you know what you've instead of like talking about like oh I can change I can do that like taking those words to action and actually making an effort to change and you know putting in the work and the time that it takes to change um but everyone who I did reach out to was actually very like understanding and very you know like appreciative of my apology <laughs> like, but like sorry I puked on you that evening <laughs> yeah <bad> <laughs> or just yeah like no. people who I had done stupid things to that like mm. I just wasn't in a good headspace at the time and at the time you can just be like oh that person's a fucking arsehole and they probably had me in that category. And then to reach out and to be like, look, I was in the height of like mental illness and addiction. And I really am sorry for what I've done. And like, I take accountability that the things I did to you were not nice. And, you know, I don't expect forgiveness, but I just would like you to know that I'm really sorry. And um, yeah, when you have actually put in the work to try and change or, you know, just like work on yourself, they're very understanding of it. So uh mm. But that has been my journey with shame. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I ask, it's kind of a random one. Uh, I, I don't know if you watch it. It's on Netflix. It's called Stutz. It's no, Jonah I've Hill actually been meaning to therapist. watch that. Yeah. I was like, I'll throw this on for a bit of a yarn, see what's going on. It's actually great. Really good. Yeah. Um, but he was talking about that in terms of the shadow. I mean, I know the shadow from Jung and that kind of psychoanalytical tradition, but he was talking about like there's a, a version of you inside of you that is rejected basically that you've just ignored or that you've pushed down or said that's bad and um mm. he advised kind of sitting down with your eyes closed and trying to call that version of you to listen to them essentially to hear what they say and so I did that and I felt like it was me like when I was sessioning wearing Hawaiian shirts and fucking <laughs> you know, in my living room selling pengers and doing bad stuff <laughs> so and I I just kind of felt like I I just had nowhere to kind of, I kind of allowed my, to get berated briefly, but, um, but there, there was also good things about like, you know, that version of me that was fun loving and that had a good time with people. And that wasn't always, that might've been a bit much, but, um, I think there's a lot to be said as well for not being too judgmental in drinking or not drinking. Like, I feel like there's a danger of rejecting yourself and rejecting other people and having this kind of complex about it almost like it's it can be so transformative but you almost I don't want to get stuck in this kind of because it's hard to 
you know, is it if it's a bad thing, are people that drink bad? <laughs> like, was I bad when I drank? Yeah. Like, or is it one of those kind of indifferent things and it's more how you behave with it? Like, I um, think for me anyway, um, that was the thing I found really difficult. And I still do find difficult that um, because I don't drink, I think a lot of people think that I hate people who drink or hate being around drunk people and that I'll have a problem or I'll be like judging them for what they're doing. And it's been like, you know, said to me in the past or being like, oh, but you know, like, I can't be like you. And it's like, I'm not expecting you to be like me. And, mm -hmm. you know, like I, if I could drink and not be an arsehole, I would. You know, like I'd love to be able to sit and have a couple of pints in the pubs with my pub <laughs> with my pals, but I actually am not capable of doing that without creating havoc for myself and just being depressed. So, um, you know, I admire people who can drink, and you know, who particularly those who have like a good relationship with it. I think it's astounding in this <laughs> in this country. Very but impressive. Yeah, it's very impressive. People who can nurse pints, honestly, they are saints amongst men. But um, champions, champions. But uh, but also it's like that. My problem with drinking isn't like alcohol. It's like mm. what it did for me. So I don't ever mm. look at someone else and think, oh God, they drink so much, like they're a piece of shit. I mm. either think like, well, they're having a deadly time, or like mm. I hope they're okay, and I hope like you know, yeah. and like that's the thing. If I do notice there's someone in my life who is kind of drinking more and kind of showing more of those signs. Like I will kind of be like, is everything okay with you? Like, got yeah. you. What's but that? like, it's, yeah, like, is everything chill? But like, I'd never look down on someone who drinks or think that there's a problem. Like, honestly, I think alcohol has its place within society. I know it's obviously very destructive, but, um, but no, and it is a hard one though, because then it yeah. does get you to that place of being like, it's so unfair, everyone else can drink. And yeah, it's, a really, it's quite difficult, but I guess what you've hit the nail on the head there is that the reasons for not drinking are generally very individual. And I think you can mm. make arguments. I mean, I don't think we drink properly at all. Like, I don't know anybody, I think, that really, except for a very small group of people who can drink like in any sort of normal way. I think what the recommended amount is like four units a week or something like something meager <laughs> do that in 20 minutes like if yeah even. <laughs> like there's there's some drinks that are four units just in one yeah drink. um so i don't think and there's health problems i mean andrew huberman did a really good podcast on the the neuroscience of alcohol and all of the effects on it and his review of the literature was that there's no health benefits to it whatsoever like it's all bad like it, it's go because it permeates the cell wall so it can affect every single organ in your body and has all these kind of physiological changes and things so i think maybe we should think more about our drinking and think more about your and i know people are like oh fuck another thing i have to think about like are you serious yeah I'm trying to think less but i think drinking is one of those things like you can it it'll it opens the door to a lot of other problems and yeah it shouldn't maybe shouldn't be as casual as we think it is um, completely and like not. the thing that I've kind of come um, and it's really been in the last kind of like year or so that's really come my way in like my my journey around drinking has just been like that like life is really hard like right life is really really hard and you also need to like go easy on yourself because like sometimes some people need whatever it is to get them through the day um 
but to make sure that that's not the thing that you're living for obviously you know some people that they're like if I didn't have sessioning like what would I do like that's obviously that's a problem and that's something you need to like assess in yourself because then you're like you know it also feeds into your self-worth if you don't have anything going on other than like going out and partying with your friends like sure that's like fun but then you'll look back in years years to come and be like what did I do though you know I didn't really like work on myself or you know like whether it's like hobbies or sports or whatever you like to channel things into Mm. like you know it is important to channel it that way but at the same time to like not go so hard on yourself is something I try to say to people as well because they're like oh like I should just like being around me they'll be like oh like I just wish I could quit drinking like you and I'm like but you don't need to I'm like you might not necessarily anyway need to like go easy on yourself because also life is there to be lived and like be kind to yourself but just make sure that you know the benefits to some degree that you're getting from it are if anything equal to the negative things or above the negative things so if it's yeah. all negative that you're getting from it like that's that's when mm. it's a real issue I think for just your actual worth as a person and how you feel in yourself yeah when it's hampering your potential as well I always think about that quote yeah. where it's like hell is when the person you could be meets the person you are like when you've passed the point of like oh my god I've just been you know frying my brain for ages and now I have to climb this mountain again for me it was very like I wanted to take away all the kind of comforts that I had like all the addiction well vices I suppose that I was using to feel comfortable and avoid like the process of developing into the person I want to be and being on that Mm. path and that actually involved taking away these things. So I'd say there is a lot of people that need to confront that. And if it's not affecting you, you know, living the life that you want to be living and you should be living, then have at it, like go get smashed. Like it sounds great. Yeah. I suspect there's a lot of people that are struggling with that more than they would admit maybe, or that is obvious. Um, Yeah. I think the admitting thing that's it it's the acceptance piece and like because you know like that's like the first step as well with AA it's like yeah. like coming to a place of acceptance of being like this is actually a problem for me because like mm. I think the word alcoholic I've said this like the word alcoholic really needs a rebrand because so many people like even myself I'm like I can't like I feel weird saying like hi I'm Hannah I'm an alcoholic because it doesn't yeah. feel you, like, like you I have am. a beard and like a bottle of wine and yeah or, or just like a or something yeah I feel like my behavior doesn't or like I felt like anyway that like my behavior didn't fit in line with what I thought that word meant and I feel like it's a very like stark word whereas like and that's what I think puts so many people off like accepting like oh like I actually have a problem with my drinking because it's such a like it feels like such an extreme um but yeah I think it's the acceptance thing that's also being able to be like okay this is creating problems or like that harboring my potential um Mm. and yeah like hurting the people around you as well I think that's another thing I was unaware of how much I was hurting those people around me like my family were walking on eggshells around me and my friends like were like irritated by me and annoyed by me and then also like worried about me and I couldn't Mm. see that so I was just like no I'm being a fun girl I'm having fun um yeah but there's more to life than that literally the definition of addiction as well is just a continuous pattern of harmful behavior that harms you or other people like 
Um, mm. And so a lot more things qualify as addictions than we think, to be honest, um, which is interesting because sometimes if you take away the drink, it might just reveal other problems. Like they'd just be like, oh, I have attachment issues and I can't, I'm afraid of people, so I can't relate to them or I can't have, you know, intimate relationships. So I have to use drink to cover it. Or yeah. so oftentimes I don't think it is the drink itself. Maybe that's really the issue, but um yeah, it's something that I think for Irish people as well, man, we're just, it's in our DNA or something to be just excessively boozing. Like It is. And like, even like, so have you seen on Colleen Kuhn yet? Uh, no, but I've heard about it. It's a film, is it? A short film? Yeah, it's a film. It's a gorgeous mm. film. I went to see it in the lighthouse last night and I won't, I won't mm. add any spoilers. But yeah. um, in it, there's, um, you know, it deals with, the theme of addiction and there's a man drinking a pint of Guinness you know that kind of like four gulp and it's down and like put down, down. <laughs> yeah no like down to the fucking ground gone <laughs> and it was the first time in so long that I then was thinking about drinking a pint I was like mm. I was like wow I actually haven't tasted that in so long and my brain my brain started just kind of going off on that kind of curiosity thing like a craving came to me for being like oh I'd love yeah. to just drink a pint again it's like yeah. and which is scary that like even mm. after nearly six years of not drinking that and like you know I think the last time we spoke I had I wasn't drinking zeros now I do drink the zero zeros just because um to be mm. sociable and I do enjoy them but um that the thing of complacency can be a very mm. uh dangerous thing that, you know, it all it takes is like a couple little uh, of those thought patterns. The media, man, like media or like films. It's like if you see somebody smoking in like Pulp Fiction or something, you're like, oh, my God, I need to start smoking again. This looks great. Um, Honestly. I found, I'm uh, reading James Joyce's autobiography at the moment. And there's all just these stories of him just getting pissed constantly and like ruining his life. And I'm like, maybe I could have a few pints. Like, <laughs> like oh, maybe yeah. it'd be. And you're like. This doesn't, you know, I know what's going to happen, but yeah, still some, there's some disconnect at times. Yeah, I know that thing. It's like so sensationalized. And like, even like in this film, the whole like point of that scene was to show how like sad this man was. And Mm. I'm like, wow. (laughs) That pint is sick. (laughs) Yeah, like sick on a pint. Like that it's so like insidiously like in our minds, in our like DNA, like um yeah yeah and was it you touched on previously that you were saying that there was even in the last kind of two years since we last spoke there's things that you'd learned about it is there anything else that you think would be useful for people even any insights that you've had um that we haven't touched on interesting um (laughs) more insights i definitely have What, what else have i learned um I think the being kind to myself thing has been one of the main ones definitely mm. in terms of like I had even I think maybe when we last spoke I was still this way that I was vegan um I wasn't drinking and I was trying to give up smoking and I was so like trying to cancel absolutely everything that I saw as negative out of my life mm. and you know being like oh and then I will have the perfect life and then I will be living perfectly <laughs> and <laughs> you're like soon this will be yeah I'll have yeah like, oh then I will transcend and it's just like yeah, yeah. this whole thing of 
I don't know. I, it made me realize then I, I basically I went off the veganism wagon after a couple of years of it, which I know so many people were like shocked by. But I was just like, life is actually so short and, you know, you could be dead tomorrow. Um, and like, why deny yourself the things in life that do bring you joy? And I was also counter to the whole like addiction thing, which is a, you know, it's a very tricky line to walk. But um, even like trying to give up smoking, it's just, I, in fact, when I was in PATH, um, giving up everything. So I was sober off of everything. And then I said to my psychiatrist, oh, I think I'm going to give up smoking. She turned to me and she was like, don't you dare. She was like, <laughs> <laughs> which is so weird for a doctor. I was like, I thought you'd be happy about this. She's she like, like, no way. She's like, no, like that'll be the straw that breaks the camel's back. Like, don't mm. come at yourself and be like, right, I'm going to overhaul my life and cut out yep. all of the negative, all of the things that are bad that I do. And that'll be the perfect person because that's not mm. a livable life. That's not an enjoyable life. It's not sustainable. So then nope. you'll get to a point after a month of misery and you'll be like, Fuck this! Throw caution to the wind, and then you go back on everything. But, binge. Um, binge hard. So it's just like you know, ten fags, like one in each. Exactly. Like I'll go back on things worse than I started on. So um, yeah, to just you know, to allow yourself to live your life and to be happy, and to allow yourselves the simple pleasures when mm. it is also still like you know safe and everything for you. Mm. Um. So yeah, like, and that's thing I've been enjoying life a lot more since doing that of being like, I actually don't need to fit the archetype of the perfect person, you know, mm. and to not compare myself to, you know, when you see like wellness influences and all this kind of stuff of being like, oh, well, she's actually sober for 10 years and she's vegan and she has a whatever range of whatever. Fuck you, man. So. Yeah. Exactly, and like, it make hey, it miserable, you... man. The social yeah. comparisons, like that is social media is a nightmare for that man because it's always your it's showing you people that are higher up and whatever like whatever you're do it's going to show you some random person that's better at it and you're going to yeah. feel bad about yourself and that's how that's the business model like exactly but, and that like i don't know so for example my roommate is also um he is sober maybe five years or something hmm. and yeah which is so amazing and then for me i I don't refer to myself as being fully sober because sometimes I will engage in recreational safe things, uh, the likes yeah. of mushrooms and things like that. Oh, yeah. But then I yes. found myself feeling like I'm a fraud because people think mm. that I'm, and I, I, I try to never use the word sober when I talk about like my journey because it's not it's fully not true drinking, to me. Like... Yeah. It's like, I don't drink. And that's kind of what I say to people. And they, whatever they want to do with that information, they turn it into whatever that I'm uh, full Russell Brand sober. <laughs> but um, like levitate. <laughs> yeah, that I like meditate for ten hours a day. But um, but yeah, then I would compare myself even to my roommate of being like, I'm not enough because even though I haven't drank in nearly six years, I'm not completely sober. And it's like that I've learned you can't compare yourself to other people's journeys. You know that like there are some people who. Yeah, they mm. might drink 10 pints in a weekend, but they don't smoke cigarettes and that's fucking class. And like, yep. whatever it is that helps get you through this chaos that is the world, like, allow yourself that. As long as it's not going mm. through these self-destructive patterns, which I haven't been, um, to like let yourself live has been the thing I've learned the most, I think. 100%. That's something I've been using in terms of thinking, because I've struggled with that as well. You kind of oscillate between like self-indulgence and self-negation where it's like, 
I'm going to do it all. And then you're like, I'm going to do nothing. <laughs> it's kind of like yeah. one to the other. And something that I really gotten from philosophy in the last while, which is the, the importance of character, this idea of your character and how your character is, you know, how you're virtuous, how your vices. And I think if you're doing these things, as long as they're not really characters about good habits and bad habits, as long as you're not mm. filling up with bad habits that are taking up your time and are getting bloated and bad, like if it's not harming your character, it's okay, fair enough. But if it is something that's habitual and it's damaging who you are, it's making you foolish, it's making you angry, it's making you behave in ways that are like that aren't, you know, good character or what people would consider to be good character, then then you have a problem. Then it's something that's actually yeah. needs to be because it is so easy to just be like, I'm going to do nothing. And then you're like, I got to do everything. And like self-regulation is like the most mysterious and there's no class for it. Like you can't in school. Yeah. They're not like, this is what you do. It's, it's very vague. Like, but, um, yeah, philosophy, just one extreme ethics, to the next. yeah, I, I would virtue recommend ethics. for people checking out virtue ethics. I think it's a secular alternative for a lot of, uh, kind of in terms of other ethics that would be like a bit more kind of dogmatic virtue ethics mm. is quite like different cultures have it's eastern western um buddhism is a virtue ethics tradition so stoicism mm. um aristotelian virtue ethics but to help you think about what what's good and what's bad i think is um i've gained a lot from it really focusing on like yeah. wisdom virtue i'm like if i drink pints it makes me foolish so i'm not pursuing <laughs> wisdom so i shouldn't drink pints but yeah then again, if it didn't make me foolish maybe it would be fine but it does. yeah and that it's all right like that thing it's like the balance thing and if I could have done balance like that would have been great but I know now in myself like I'm aware enough of myself to know I can't do balance in that area of my life anyway and some people are capable of that and that's class but it's yeah. also that I think the manifestation of um there's something that I wasn't aware of and I know a lot of people in their own drinking and other like using habits aren't aware of it's like when you're actually using a substance because of something that's going on with you that you're not even that aware of that you're like deeply sad or for me I had like childhood trauma that I had not worked through and I didn't realize that whenever that would be triggered that I'd be like let's get fucking wrecked like I never saw that little um I just see it as a like no I just have this impulse to go out and have loads of fun this is deadly I'm feeling great but that actually when you you know start to pull that string back and trace it back and it's actually something much more deeper and rooted. So um, that's definitely something as well, I think, in people's drinking, you know, if you can assess it with yourself to be like, you know, am I using this as something that's obstructive or because I don't want to deal with what's going on with me internally? Or do I actually just want to see my friends who have been home, who are home, have been away for two years yeah. and drink a rake of points? Mm. And that's okay if you do having to face that pain that resonates with me so much as well in terms of my own like problems in my house growing up and family and uh just wanting to get out and stay out for as long as possible because oh, i didn't yeah. want to go back and that was always and then if that becomes a habit you don't even realize that you're still acting out the same pattern of behavior that you had when you were a kid like but there's no Completely. there isn't really another option like you have to turn and face it at some point you have to start dealing with it you have to kind of the running away just ultimately it takes you further away like it doesn't it doesn't get you any closer to feeling better um yeah and quite the opposite so I, I would encourage people to voluntarily start to confront those things for your own 
well-being in the long run because you know you're going to turn into a person in the future and yeah you'll have to have dealt with it beforehand yeah and it's gonna like it won't go away by not looking at it that's the thing you have to feel it to heal it isn't that what they say to go inwards a hundred percent like uh, yeah the more something what was it problems avoided or problems multiplied conflict avoided is conflict multiplied I don't know. Anyway, we've got enough catchphrases, but yeah, <laughs> amen, <yeah>. sis. Hundred <laughs> percent. Um, thank you so much, Anna. I think that's a good place mm-hmm. to finish it, and hopefully, we'll do this again for the trilogy when we come back. I can't wait. Even Time more to... lessons learned. Mm, more <laughs> well, insights. I'll be back on the pints. I'll be falling over in the bath. And me too. Like <laughs> <laughs> no. Right. Oh, but thank you so much, man. Thank you, Anna. Appreciate it. Oh.